0: Well, we are in um, the book of Ecclesiastes, and today we're going to deal with the fallacy of pursuing wealth as the end goal of your life. The first true billionaire in America was a gentleman named John D. Rockefeller. He was the most wealthy person in the world during his day. And one time, John D. Rockefeller, who died in 1938, I think it was at the age of 98. Uh, He was asked, how much wealth is enough? And his comment was this, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. We're going to look at a passage this morning that talks about the pursuit of wealth. And what that does to a person's life when you live only under the sun. Ecclesiastes is written by a king named Solomon, we believe, who in his later years is looking back in his midlife, and he's lamenting the way he lived under the sun, only under the sun. He's, he, he said, as a, as a middle-aged man, I lived as if God really was not there, and if he was there, he was not involved in my life. And so he didn't give himself to what we call hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure without any regard for people around him, but he gave himself to Epicureanism, which is the pursuit of pleasure in a socially acceptable fashion without any reference to God. And he accumulated great wealth. He had 700 wives. He had power. He had authority. He was the man. And yet he writes this book with a sense of bitter reflection about how he blew it in the Middle Ages. And this book is incredibly healthy tonic for you whether you're 18 or 98 in regards to how you live before the Lord. And I've said before and I've said many times that, that I think in our own culture, we deal with the issue of creeping Epicureanism, having more and more and more and giving ourselves to things That would be considered the pursuit of pleasure. Solomon had had wine, women, and song in abundance as well as money. The issue with Solomon was not what was missing, but who was missing. He was living life only under the sun. Therefore, he said, everything is vanity of vanities. So listen to the book of Ecclesiastes. I'll read a few verses starting in verse 10. It says this, Riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came... So shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. And, and so Solomon lived for the next big thing. The feverish pursuit of more. And in his pursuit of more, he received more. He had more money, more demands, more responsibility, more indigestion, more sleepless nights, more risky investments, more vexation of spirit, more destruction of heart, mind, and soul, and more isolation. He had all these things because he lived only under the sun. And we need to understand that if we live only under the sun, that is easily where we will end up if we give ourselves to the vanity of wealth. And he says it's all smoke and mirrors, it's all mist, it's all like trying to catch the wind in your hand. So I'm going to give you four principles from this text, then some application statements. Number one, the love of money does not satisfy, verses 10 and 11. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. As goods increase, so do responsibilities. Verse 11. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In other words, he says, he says the pursuit of wealth does not satisfy. And really, when you get more and you buy more and you have more and you have more machinery, more homes, more whatever, you have more people who work for you, who labor for you. You got to take care of this and this and this. He says, eventually... You just look at your things with your eyes and you don't don't really enjoy it. One translation says this. He says, the more you have, the more people you have to spend it on. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? The pursuit of the next big thing. Never have enough. Recently, read a story about this painting, it's entitled, Salvatore Mundi. This painting was sold at an auction in 1958 for $120 to a couple from greater Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They came back, he was a on a sheet metal plant, he hung it in his house and there it stayed since 1958 had no children so the house went to a niece and she sold the home. She was retired librarian, had no need for that house and so she sold the house and the contents. The painting was appraised at that time for $750 just a few years ago. It went to New Orleans. They decided to auction it at a uh, art auction. It sold for around I think $1,500. Um, and the person who bought it was an art historian, and started looking at it thinking, you know, this may not be a mere replica of Da Vinci. There are, t- there are 20 Da Vinci originals in the world today. The last Da Vinci original to be discovered was over 100 years ago. So, this is an outside job. But they started doing research, they had it examined, and it was declared to be a Da Vinci original. And so recently, it was valued at four hundred and fifty point three million dollars. And the woman who sold the painting for seven hundred fifty dollars from her, the hall of her home, where she went every day as she went to visit her uncle to go to the bathroom, said this: "Is oh how I wish it were still in the family." Probably the most significant understatement ever been uttered. <laughs> seven hundred fifty point three million dollars, just slips through your fingers. It's gone. Number two, money is a bad place for to, to build a bed. Verse 12, Solomon says, when it comes to the laborer, he says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep the psalmist says, I look at the day laborer who goes out and he works hard and he sweats and he lifts and he strains and he goes home and he eats a very simple meal, maybe some, you know, some rice and some beans, a little chicken thrown in. And he eats and he sits at the table with his family and he laughs and he goes to bed and he just sleeps. He says, but not me. He says, there's two ways to interpret this verse. Let me give you the first way. The first way is, I I lay awake at night, my stomach is full, but I'm worrying about what's coming down the road. I'm worried about how I'm going to do this, and how I'm going to do this, and how that's going to work together, and how this, and how this. See, when you live life only under the sun, you don't lay down and sleep. You don't have sweet sleep. You worry. You fret. And you fume, you, you have no concept. There's an Abba Father who watches over you. And so you worry, worry, worry. You worry about the future. You worry about the present. You worry about how this, how that works. And he says, you know, I, 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 just, I just couldn't sleep. So we, we live under the watch care of the living God who says, not a fair hair will fall from your head without your Father's knowledge. You're much more important than the birds and he does, he, the, the, the father knows when a bird falls from the sky and you're an infinitely more valuable with the birds. And so we, we sleep at night saying, Lord, Psalm 127 says he gives to his beloved sleep. So I'm gonna sleep and I'm gonna trust you to watch over my kids, my grandkids, my life. But you live only on the sun, you don't have that, you worry or Another way to interpret that is is what the passage says here in this regard. The the, the full stomach of the rich man will not let him sleep. What's interesting here is if you're an Epicurean, you've got to taste and dabble and taste and dabble and taste and dabble. You know, chapter one, he wanted to become a wine connoisseur. So you've got to taste this and taste that, and you dabble here and you dabble there. It's not that you overeat. It's that you're always tasting something new and original and different because you have the money to buy that. I recently had something of this experience uh, Soon I'm invited to go to a conference at uh, Reynolds Plantation outside of Atlanta, a really nice place, with a group called the Alliance Defending Freedom that I highly recommend to you. And so we get there, and the vast majority of people there are attorneys, and they ask a few pastors to come. And So the first night, there's a big gala meal on the lake with several food stations. And I'm going, you know, I, I really need to sample all the food here to make sure that it's really good. And so I went to all the food stations and I had dessert. And I went to bed that night and went, oh my gosh. Got up the next morning, breakfast at seven o'clock, cause they met from, they met from eight to four every day, meetings. Got up and went to the breakfast, oatmeal, omelet station, all these pastries, all this bread, casseroles. And I said, well, I, I've got to taste them. And so I did. I went to that first meeting thinking, oh man. And then at 10 o'clock, take a break, go outside and they have a, 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 several tables with pastries and fruits and juice. I'm going, good grief. But you know what I did? I tasted them. Lunch, lavish lunch, supper, lavish supper. I mean, we were there for six days. By the sixth day, the last they had the big dessert fellowship. I said, don't even let me look at dessert. I'm, I am miserable. And I thought, I, 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 I couldn't live this way. Well, you, if, if you're an Epicurean, that's the way you live. You don't necessarily overeat, just always sample, always sample. And he says, You know, I, I'm, I'm always in the Epicurean pursuit of the next big thing. So money makes a poor bit when you don't have Abba Father to look to. The third point is that there's no guarantees. Verses 13 to 16 says that I've seen a grievous evil that's under the sun. Riches were kept by the owner to his own hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's a father of a son but has nothing in his hand and and as he came from his mother's womb he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry it away in his hand. This is a grievous evil. Just as he came so shall he go and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? He said "It's it's a grievous evil to me to live only under the sun and the grievous evil is this. He said you know I came into the world without clothes and I'm going to go out of this world without clothes, basically. I came into the world naked, leaving naked. And then I, I'm, here I go. That, that's just life. He says, it's, And it's a, grievous, it's a grievous evil to people who live only under the sun to think one day we will be dead and gone and it's no big deal in most people's minds. See, when you live only For the day, today. Only for today. It's this one. The dot, today. But if you're a believer, you live for eternity. And so, if you live only for the day, you live only under the sun, it is a, death is a horrendous thought. It's horrendous. You can't handle death. Let me tell you something. We live in a culture that cannot handle death. They can't deal with the finality of death. I've been absolutely thunderstruck the last 10 or 12 years. When a young person dies, it's been a lot of people will, young people will on their cars put things like, we we will miss you, exclamation point. I'm, I'm going, it's kind of like they've gone to Spain to study for six months. No, they're gone. Death is final. And we go to funeral services, and it's, there's not. Oftentimes, I don't get the sense that this is there's a finality here. It's kind of like a life passage, and it's no big deal. Death is a big deal, and if you live only under the sun, you have to deny and avoid and 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 really medicate yourself to handle death. But for believers who believe to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord, you know, we deal with death. We look death square in the face and we deal with it because there's hope, because today is not the best day. Today may be the worst day we will ever experience, but it may be the best day for people who don't know Christ. Glory is coming for us. So Solomon just, he's cursing, he's cursing. He said, this isn't fair, it's a grievous evil. That's a strong word, a grievous evil. You've all heard the story. In this story, you'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And it's true. It's true. You won't. Then he says this, verse 17. It's a wretched experience. It's a wretched experience. One translation says this. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. You see, if you're like Solomon, you have wealth. You end up saying to yourself, can I really trust anybody? Do these people like me because they want to be my friend or because I'm the king and have lots of money? Do, do these people want to live in security because they have me as a friend? What about the future? I don't know what the future holds. What about my investments? I don't know what they have. So, so in, you end up not trusting people. And one translation says you eat in darkness and isolation all alone. And when you pursue wealth and when money is your God and acquiring things is your God, it breeds isolation and hypersensitivity and hypersuspension and deadness to your soul. And so that's why this book is such an incredible story, such an incredible medicine to my soul. It's a wretched life. When you're your God and you live only under the sun, it's a wretched life. I heard the story about a friend who I used to be on a board with, and I'm sure this happened because I know him, can't tell you his name, he was a pastor right at a seminary in a very small church in a southern town, and there was a man in the church who was the deacon who underwrote most of the budget of the church and everybody knew it, so everyone deferred to him. And he was a mean man, mean-spirited, cantankerous, uncaring. And he gave this young preacher hell all the time. Nobody liked him. His children didn't like him. He didn't have any friends. But he ran the church. He ran the town, small town. And his wife preceded him in death, probably much to her joy and relief. She had already died. And the man died. And... uh, the man had a favorite pet, a dog, and he gave instructions that when I die, put the dog to sleep and bury the dog with me in my coffin. I'm not sure we could do that today. But is it pet or pita? Pita. I always say it wrong. Is it pita? Pita, same right? Peta, not pita. Pita. What's the Greek, Greek food that you eat? Greek bread. Same thing? Same pronunciation? Okay. Anyway, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, right? They probably probably would. No. Anyway, the guy died. Dog's in the coffin. This young pastor has been tormented by this guy. He's at the funeral home. He's getting ready to give his, his sermon, funeral sermon. He's not going to be unkind to him, but the kids are there because they have to be there. There are a couple of people there who have to be there. Nobody wanted to be there. And so this pastor um, said, to the family, he said, just leave and let me have a moment here to collect my thoughts before we have the funeral. I mean, they wheeled the body into the little small chapel, and he closed the door, and he looked to the mortician, and he said, sir, we're going to be friends for a while, and we're going to be working together, and if anybody ever tells what I'm about to do, I will know that you told it. He said, what do you mean? And he went over and he took the dog up, and he turned it. So the dog's backside was in the man's face. And he closed the lid and said, we can have the funeral now. And the mortician was laughing so hard he could barely move, you know. Um, There are people like that out there. They're just mean. Because they live only under the sun. Let me tell you something. If you want your soul to die, if you want your soul to die, live only under the sun. Live only for today and the next big thing, and your soul will die, especially as you grow older, because you realize as you get older, the next big thing is near as much fun as you thought it was gonna be. So now, some observations. Number one, money is a blessing from God, but the love of money can destroy your soul. Now, Now, some people say, no, wait, you should say money Potentially is a blessing. No, money is a blessing from God. We never say the scholarship is potentially a blessing from God. No, it's a blessing. Athleticism is potentially a blessing. No, social skills are potentially a blessing from God. No, every gift is a gift from God. So so money is a blessing from God, but the love of money can destroy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he, and he says these words, they're, they're, they're such, see, he says, Timothy, he's talking about fighting the good fight, he says, as, as for the rich in this present age, Timothy, command them, charge them, not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in the living God, who richly supplies us for everything that we need. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life. Command them. He says to Timothy, just char- command them to do these things. He says, I'm commanding you because, because that wealth is a blessing from God, but a staggeringly horrid master. The love of money is a really bad idea, Jesus says. So, so wealth, you can put in their sexuality, you can put in their fame, you can put in their friendships, family, a blessing, but only one was meant to be our master, and his name is Jesus. And anything else is a really bad idea. In Deuteronomy 17, before. God gives the people of Israel a king. He gives them instructions about the king. Let me just read a few verses. This is, I'll start in verse 16. He says this, he says, the king must not acquire many horses. Solomon, let me say, violated every one of these stipulations. The the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt nor to have more horses. Verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And that's exactly what happened. Solomon loved many foreign women, and they turned his heart away from the living God. Verse 18, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself, listen, write for himself, not a scribe. He should get out a quill and parchment and write for himself this law of Moses. See? Write for himself. In a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest and he shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and the statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandments either to the right or to the left. And he may continue long in the kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is Solomon violated every one of those things. Listen, money is a blessing. Wealth is a blessing. God, thanks be to God for the gift of of, of finances and, and wealth. But it's a horrid master. Number two, I live as a steward. You live as if you're if you're a follower of Christ, you live as a steward who has been given much and will give an account for living with joy under the lordship of Christ. So so stewardship is a huge issue for us. A a steward realizes that everything he's been given is a gift from God. Philippians 4, my God shall supply all of your needs. We're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Here's what stewardship is like. You're sitting at home. There's a knock on the door. You open the door. There's a guy standing there that lives down the street and says, you know, I just went out and I bought some groceries, bought too many groceries. Here are three bags of groceries. Wow. Thanks. Next day, same guy. I went out and shopped for clothes. and here, Here's two big boxes of clothing. Maybe you can use them. Wow. Next day, knock on the door. Same guy says, you know, there, I own a house down the street and nobody's in it. I would like for you to live in it and don't worry about paying the rent. You go, wow. Every day the Father meets our needs. Every day. Every day he blesses us. Every day he says, I will meet your needs under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I'm calling you to be a steward. Number three, a barometer of my faith is the way I handle money. I was thinking about Hebrews 13 recently, just meditating on it. Hebrews 13, 1 to 19 is kind of an application statement. But it to me, verse one is kind of the placebo, the banner statement. He says, brothers and sisters, let brotherly love continue. So that, that's, so, so. let brotherly love continue. And then he gives several instances of how brotherly love continues. He says, verse two, do not do not neglect to show hospitality because sometimes when you entertain people, you're entertaining angels without knowing it. Now, that's a wild sight. That's wild. We're going to have some people over our house this afternoon. To my knowledge, none of them are angels, but some, somebody may slip in, okay? He says, secondly, remember those who are in prison. How does Brother Love continue? Well, you remember those who are in prison as, as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the same body of Christ. In other words, we're praying this morning for the suffering church in Syria and, and Yemen. Dear people, North Korea. Where, where people are being persecuted for their faith. Remember them. It, it, it focuses your attention. Next, they all seem unrelated, but under the, the banner of brotherly love, let... Next, let marriage be held in high honor among you. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So you hold marriage in high, high, high esteem. And you guard your sexuality because you realize that God judges the sexually immoral. And then next, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said i will never leave you nor forsake you contentment comes in understanding abba father watches over us somebody gave me an article from wall street journal the finance section that said that when you retire, you need to have 125% of your present-day income at the height of your money-making power. Not that, that, that's impossible. Not going to happen. And they're, they're, they're just doing this. I'm saying, you know, I, I know something these guys don't know. There is a Father in heaven who watches over me. Therefore, I don't have to be overly... I, I'm, I'm trying to save. I'm trying to be wise. Don't misunderstand me. But, but I, I, I can step back and say, there is a God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. won't happen. It will not happen. And my mercies are new every morning. Through the years, when I... Ask some of the elders, elder leadership, to tell me what I should be doing differently. Consistently, these godly men will say to me, and some of them are here this morning, you need to preach more on the joy of stewardship and giving. I go, yeah, okay. So every January we we have this emphasis. But, But the more I thought about it, the more I say, you know, they're right. I'm reading Ecclesiastes, I'm going, boy, they're right. And one reason these godly men are, are, are saying, preach on this is because they know there's a joy when you become a responsible steward in partnership with the living God. There's joy there. And, and there's, there's a blessing when you bless other people. And also, when you tap into being a good steward and you live responsibly in all the areas of your life, including your money, it unleashes the power of God in your life. It does. It brings the nearness and the power of the Lord in your life. It's a wonderful thing. And I was thinking about this. And I'm trying to read through the Sermon on the Mount because uh, I'll be preaching that in a few months and or a few weeks, in, and I, I hit this. I'm just amazed in the Sermon on the Mount. How many times in these three chapters? Three chapters. Jesus talks about money. It's amazing. Just listen to this. You know this passage. Do not lay for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay for treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But listen to the next little thought. The eye is the lamp of the body. If the eye is healthy, the whole body is flooded with light. But if the eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness if then the light within you is darkness how great is the darkness now listen to this he says that the eyes and lamp of the body if what you desire and you look for and you long for and, and and you pray for is the advancement of the kingdom and the honor of christ and the blessing of other people your body is full of light but if you're consumed with self and you're living only under the sun, and it's only about me, and you're living for the dot instead of eternity, your whole body is full of darkness. And then Jesus says this, if the light within you is darkness, how horrifically bad is the darkness. So I want to see clearly. And I see clearly as I walk in obedience to the scripture. I see clearly as I ask Christ to be enthroned in my life. This is a huge issue. Point four, observation number four is God gives us these things for our enjoyment. First Timothy 6, but also verse 18 says this, Ecclesiastes 5. He says, uh, eat and drink and find enjoyment in all your toil. Verse 19, everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power should enjoy them. Verse 20, one translation says this. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. I love that. And I look at this and I just ask myself, I ask you, are you enjoying your life? Is there enjoyment in the good gifts of God? So two application statements now. Number one, God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians chapter nine says, each one must give us has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. Now let me, let me tell you something. You college students, there are tons of college students here, young adults, tons. Listen, you get hold of this principle, it'll bless your life. It'll bless your life. God loves a cheerful giver. I was at a banquet a week ago last Friday night sponsored by our Friends Ministry. Our Friends Ministry, Friends ministry here is a, is a wonderful uh, group of people who on Sunday morning and every other month for three or four hours on a Friday night take care of and love special needs children. Uh, and as I get to know the parents of many special needs children, they become my heroes. The, the incredible outlay and energy required to love these precious children is, is really beyond human strength. It really is. So they, 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 we have a Bible class for them for an hour and a half so parents can come to worship on Sunday morning. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. And I love this ministry for a number of reasons. But one reason I love this ministry is that it gladdens the heart of God. You read the Bible, God says you do it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you do it to me. It's amazing. I think of our Families count ministry that, that where we intentionally love and care for some dear people in our church, families in crisis, and share the gospel with them and love them and mentor them and pray for them, and they fall in love with them and it, it gladdens the heart of God. I, I think if I walk down the hall and see the number of families who are foster parents. this is wonderful, or the number of families that have adopted children and and, and, and love these children. All these things gladden the heart of God. You know what else gladdens the heart of God? A cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. Who doesn't live only under the sun. A cheerful giver who doesn't live for the dot, but lives for eternity. A cheerful giver who says, I am a steward, therefore, I'm honoring God with everything that I have. I want to be a cheerful giver. I struggle with that sometimes. <laughs> I do. I do. I want to be a cheerful giver. The second thing is uh, I believe in the biblical tithe. You give 10% for the gospel causes, I think, to the local church, to let the elders disperse, the can community disperse. Um, there's a book called Money, Possessions, and Eternity by a guy named Randy Alcorn. It's a great book on giving. If you're going to read one book, read this book. This is what he says. Tithing, giving 10%, gives perspective. It reminds us that we all are and we all, all that we have is from God. Tithing is not a tip thrown mindlessly down on a table after a meal, but a meaningful expression of dependence upon God and gratitude to Him. Tithing requires calculation, forethought. Forethought. When we deal specifically with the amounts God has provided, we assess God's goodness to us. We literally count our blessings, thanking Him for His generosity. Tithing was and can still be a built-in reminder at every juncture of life or our unlimited debt unto God. He calls tithing the training wheels of discipleship for a believer. Now, see, here, here's the issue. You, you know, that's why I want to give you some application here, just to say, man, God loves a cheerful giver. Go out there. It's going to. I think it's going to fall flat unless you intentionally in your budget plan to give. It's just it's going to fall flat. That's why I believe ten percent is where is where we go. It's where we go. Um, it's just like going to a marriage conference and with a bunch of let's say let's say a rally for men about being about being good husbands. Just a bunch of guys. Preceded by a bunch of bacon and meat, you know, that kind of stuff. And so the speaker goes up there and says, Man, man, Ephesians says we must love our wives as Christ loves the church. High five inch, fist pumping. The, the, the scripture says, Ephesians 5, we've got to cherish our wives. Guys, do you cherish your wives? No, we should fist pump, fist pump. Go out there and do it. Well, I, I need some tracks to run on. So I think the, the, the best exercise would be, okay, now you mean get in groups of five and, 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 and you write down three ways you're gonna love your wife like Jesus loves the church sacrificially this week. Oh my God, I'm gonna bring my wife coffee in bed three days this week. I'm going to pick up my clothes when I step out of them, instead of just leaving them in the floor expecting a fairy to come along and throw them in the clothes hamper. I've only been asked that for thirty-eight years. I should, I should listen, okay? I, I, I'm going to make sure that my wife's car, every Wednesday and every Sunday, is full of gasoline, so she won't have to stop and get gas. Say, well, now those aren't monumental things, but they're tracks to run on. Right? Amen, wives. See, yeah. See, we, we just we need we need application. That's why God gave us the tithe. So enjoy things without being mastered by them. Man, enjoy it. See, there's a little diagram in your worship guide right here is about we've had the last few weeks, but a, a disciple is a forgiven sinner who's continually learning Jesus in repentance and faith. And you do that in the context of the body of Christ. And as, as, I, as I think about this, I go, one, one of the problem. listen, listen, one of the problems of wealth is that it gives us the opportunity to, to go everywhere. And there are people that I love and care for in this church that often I don't see for three or four or five weeks because they're traveling, 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 traveling. And you know, my, here, here's my concern. I love consistency and boring routines. So does God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy was not a suggestion. And in the early church changed the, 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 the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday because of the greatness and the glory and the fulfillment of all the promises of the, of the Scripture met in Jesus who was resurrected from the dead on a Sunday. So, so every Sunday is Easter Sunday, to a degree. I need the consistency of being with brothers and sisters in Christ I need that. I need that consistency. This, just the consistency. You need it. God gave us. You need people in your life who live differently. than The, the whole world around you lives for the dot. Everybody around you says, what's the next big thing? Live for the dot. And then as you get older, the big thing is not satisfying, so you become grumpy and bitter and callous. You need people, in that are living for eternity. They think that way. They pray that way. They plan that way. They raise their kids that way. I need that. You need that. Because the dot is all that we get 24-7. Even on Fox. I read this the other day. I thought, wow, this is cool. It helps me understand. See, he said that the Christian life is like playing golf. It's not like the multiplication tables. Now, I grew up in the era where we learned our multiplication tables. Before we had these calculators, we just had limited brain ability. So I learned all the multiplication tables through 12 times 12. So I can can spin them off right now. But he said that the Christian life is like playing golf, which is a glorious sport, but is a maddening sport as you play golf. I don't play golf. I tried to play golf when I was younger with my little brother. My little brother was really good, and I was horrible, and so I couldn't stand not being better than my little brother, so I never played golf again. A very mature attitude, and uh, and he he turned he turned out he played college golf, and he's a great golfer great golfer. So a few years ago, I uh, said, no, I'm getting old. I can't run anymore. My kidney's tendon hurts. My back hurts. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to take up golf. There's a man in this church who's a scratch golfer. He's a great golfer. He's been a golf coach. So I put him aside and said, you know, I'm, I think I'm going to take up golf. And he dropped his head and he said, can I be honest with you? I said, sure. He said, please don't. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, I know you well enough to know that you, you're going to be pretty competitive. He says, and, and for you to really ever, ever be good in golf, you've got to take a lot of lessons and play three times a week. And it will drive you crazy and everybody around you crazy. I said, okay. So I didn't take it up. I took up shuffleboard instead. I'm really good at shuffleboard. So anyway, the thing, the thing, but, but see that, that, See, the Christian life is like golf. It takes work and trial and work and work and work and work in the company of other people. you just walking in obedience to Jesus. It's not the multiplication tables because we deal with sin, self, and the devil. I need to live, be with people who live for eternity. Now, I began with... John D. Rockefeller. Let me close with John D. Rockefeller. Let me tell you the rest of the story, if you remember Paul Harvey. John D. Rockefeller um, took his, was raised in a home. He was born in Upper State New York. They moved to Ohio. He had uh, four siblings. There were five children in the family. Or excuse me, six children. He had five siblings. He was the oldest son, the second child born in the family. His mother was named Eliza, and she was a godly woman who was a Baptist who catechized and trained her children and brought them to church every Sunday and throughout the week. His dad was a horrendous con artist, a philanderer, a bigamist. He became a bigamist before bigamy was cool. Uh, He cheated people out of their money. He constantly had... uh, girlfriends on the side. He taught his boys that it was okay to swindle, so forth and so on, but his mom was a godly, godly, godly woman. John D. Rockefeller said his mother would often say to them about being wise with their money. She said, she quoted John Wesley, the British evangelical from the 18th century, who said, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. He was raised to understand the grace of Christ. One day he went to church as a young boy, and he was just beginning as a, as a kind of a teenager type thing and uh, was understanding money and what it, how to have a job. And he talked to the visiting pastor, and the visiting pastor said he reached over and put his hand in his head, and he says, young man, I charge you before God to earn all you can and give as much of it away as possible. And John D. Rockefeller said, I received that as a charge from God. So Rockefeller grew up, and of course he started Standard Oil Company. At one time he controlled 90% of all the oil in America, which was judged to be kind of a monopoly. Um, But he gave away... Hundreds of millions of dollars. As an older man, he would go to church every Lord's Day in Cleveland. He would go to prayer meeting twice a week. He taught Sunday school. And sometimes he would be the volunteer janitor at his church. Amazing. Because of a godly mama who taught him these principles. He started the University of Chicago with a huge endowment. Started another school in the Philippines, so forth. So I can go on and on and on about what he did. But but, but the issue is understanding the stewardship of life. It's not what is missing is who is missing. Living for eternity and not the dot. Ecclesiastes can teach us so much about life. Let us hear it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day. Um, uh, I I pray that we would be people who catch a vision of biblical stewardship and the obedience of our life to Jesus, of our our time, our money, our talents, our service. I I pray that you'd give us a hunger and a passion to be involved um, in strategic friendships with people who are living for eternity. Thank you for surrounding me with people who live for eternity. What a blessing that's been to my soul. I pray that our young people would understand these concepts and be men and women who burn with a passion to know Jesus and to make him known to their contemporaries as they live as unto you. I pray you give us the pursuit of excellence whether it's in law or medicine or teaching or mechanics or homemaking whatever it is that, that we live in such a way that we could proclaim to our contemporaries that we are operating and living under the banner of Jesus as stewards of the multiple mercies of Christ. Blessed be your name. Teach us, I pray, in Jesus' name.